0: Genesis chapter 12. Let me tell you a short little story about a Frenchman. One day this Frenchman had to leave the city of Paris in France. He had decided that he, well, he needed to get out of there because he was, he was in hot water, so to speak. He was in trouble as a Christian. So he decided to head west, uh, put a uh, a map here on the screen of France for you. He was heading over, uh, sorry, not west, east, over to. Uh, he wanted to go over somewhere by either Strasbourg there or Basel, and which is on the eastern border of France. He and he wanted to go there to find some refuge, where he could kind of just be alone, be safe. He 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 was one of these uh, guys who liked to study and he loved to write. But he could not travel straight east because in the year 1536. King Francis of France and Emperor Charles V were actually fighting a war against each other, and and as a result, uh, he couldn't travel east because the roads were blocked because of the war. So he had to detour south, and then uh, eventually, after going far enough south, then he could travel east before he'd go back north to where he wanted to get to. And because of that detour, he ended up staying in Geneva, Switzerland right on the border of France there in, in Switzerland. And as providence would have it, he met one of these, these very interesting guys of history, it was a very fiery man by the name of William Farrell. And if you ever go to Geneva, Switzerland, you'll see, you'll see this, these, uh, these statues. Right next to the guy I'm talking about is this guy, William Farrell. And, uh, of course, he caught up with this guy named John Calvin. And William Farrell, being this fiery preacher of a guy that he was, actually threatened John Calvin with God's judgment. And he said, you've got to stay here, John. Help us out. We need you. God's going to judge you if you don't. If you don't remain here and assist with the Reformation in Geneva, God will judge you. He will curse you. John Calvin got under conviction from God, and praise God, he answered the call. You'll see a picture of someone's description of this. This was actually written or carved in in a piece of wood. But it's, it's an interesting story, because we don't think too much, as we think about John Calvin and how much God used him, we don't often think how God actually used a war, to get John Calvin in Geneva, Switzerland. What a huge impact that little circumstance had on the entire world. Well, in the same way, as we come to Genesis 12 here, what a huge impact. Something little. off. God often uses little things to accomplish His great purposes. And one might not see the huge significance in God's calling of a single individual until one realizes that call is going to bring blessing upon the entire world through this one man. The Bible says that Abraham is kind of like a funnel. And through through Abraham, blessing came to the entire world. God is set on blessing His world and he begins that program here by calling this man whom we, who is, the Bible calls Abraham. So let's read about God's call to Abraham here in Genesis 12. We'll start in verse 1. Now the Lord, that is Yahweh, said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And There he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. That ends the paragraph we're going to look at today. So I propose to you do, to, to you today from this particular paragraph here that God is demanding something of us. Not just Abraham, but us as well. That God demands this place of supreme affection in our lives. So today we're going to look at Yahweh's call to Abram and, and see what we can learn from this. If you're not familiar with God's name, Yahweh, let me just point it out to you. Because every time in your Old Testament, when you see Lord in all capital letters, that is God's name, which is Yahweh in Hebrew. I prefer to use that. So as we, as we look at Yahweh's call here, that's, let's see what we can learn from this. First of all, we see that God's call here is unexplainable, really it's just unexplainable did you notice how the chapter begins chapters 1 through 11 are amazing but now we come to chapter 12 here and it just says that Yahweh said to Abram (laughs) those words are difficult to explain if you keep that particular sentence within the greater context it's really unexplainable and you say well why is that because for one thing, it's hard to explain, because historically, it's, it's just an amazing statement. Of course, Genesis 12 comes in the greater context of Genesis. We've already looked at the first 11 chapters here. It's a big problem, as you think about that statement. It's not a problem for God, but in our human thinking, it's a problem. And here's the problem, my friends, because... We've, we've read in the first 11 chapters of this threefold crisis that's happened after the beautiful, you'll see on this next slide, the, the beautiful things that happened in the first two chapters of Genesis where God creates the entire universe within seven days and He declares it's all very good. Then you come to chapter 3 of Genesis and, and you got the first of the threefold crisis, you, which we call the fall the fall of mankind into sin and then you get into chapter 6 through 8 and you've got this this horrible crisis of we have the flood god destroys the earth with the flood and then in chapter 11 you got this thing we we call the tower of babel all bad events that are happening there why 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 is this there why why is god talking about all this and why is it unexplainable because those things are presenting us with a world that is very pleased to just kind of live without Yahweh's kingship in their lives. They're happy to go on and live without God, without His fellowship in their lives. And so as a result, the world is cursed in chapter 3. The world is destroyed in chapter 8. And then in chapter 11, it's just scattered. God scatters them because they're just trying to build this tower and... Unite, and so if if you didn't have any of the rest of the Bible, you come here to chapter eleven, and you'd say, "Well, okay, this is the end, right? All right here, here it is. This is the end. This is the end needs to come. the The Judge of the universe is going to come, and and, and he's going to appear at this point. Divine judgment's going to destroy the world again. Well, that's what you might think if you didn't read the rest of your Bible, right? And and so because of all this. It's really unexplainable what God says in chapter 12. Why does Yahweh give the world another chance? Why does Yahweh's blessing come to this individual? And through him, all people of the earth are blessed. Well, God insists on blessing this world here with Abraham, not because something special about him, but God's going to just use him and and he's going to be the channel of blessing. So instead of destruction, he's going to start all over again. And it's, this time, it's going to be different. It's going to be with, well, kind of similar to Noah, but in this case, it's just with one man. His name's Abram. So God has the end in mind. He, he knows all things, right? And in Revelation 7, verse 9, here's God's view. Because he says, i put the verse on the screen for you. It says that there's this great multitude in heaven that no one could number, from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. See, my friends, that's what's going to happen one day. And God knew that, of course, and He's working out His plan. Despite human frailty and their sin and their failures, God is very long-suffering here, and we see Him blessing yet again. So I you know, as you look at the book of Genesis historically here, God's call upon Abram is really unexplainable for historical purposes. But, but as we look at it personally, we need to understand who is this guy? Once you recognize who he is, God's call upon this individual is unexplainable because uh, we, we need to really understand who he is. So sometimes we don't, and sometimes Christians have these warm, fuzzy feelings about Abraham that maybe they, they sh- that aren't really warranted. Do you? <laughs> Do you have warm, fuzzy feelings about Abraham? You might if you read Romans four or Hebrews chapter eleven. You get lots of warm, fuzzy, good feelings about him. But that's not all the Bible says about him. And sometimes those feelings might actually lead us astray. Because the Bible's view says more. In fact, here's what Joshua, the leader of Israel, who led them into the Promised Land, here's what he had to say as he's repeating God's words to the nation of Israel. Look at this. Joshua 24, verse 2, says that Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham Abraham and of Nahor, they served other gods. So who is this Abraham guy? (laughs) Well, my friends, notice Abraham is a sinner. This is Abraham the pagan. Abraham the idolater. There's nothing special about Abraham. And in fact, it really defies logic because the call of Abraham is unexplainable. And may I say it's the same for you and for me. It's no different for you. And so if you think that you somehow, you you know why God has shown His grace to you, my friend, then you don't really know yourself and you don't know God and you don't particularly understand His grace in your life. You don't know what grace is so may I suggest that you read the book of Romans. Maybe that'll be a good starting point to understand God's grace in your life. So we see, first of all, as we think about God's, or Yahweh's, call upon Abraham here, it's unexplainable. And the point I want to make here is that it's it's the same for you and for me. God's call upon your own life is unexplainable. If God should somehow invade into your life, as He's done for every believer, it's unexplainable. It's undeserved. It defies logic. So you can just praise God if He's done that in your life. But number two, what else do we learn about God's call here is that it is successful. God's call is successful. Now, how do we know that? How do we know that God's call upon Abram was successful? Well, if you look at verse 4, we see that Abraham obeyed God. He just obeyed God. Look at verse 4. So Abram went. (laughs) Abram went as the Lord had told him. Praise God, Abram obeyed God. Now these verses tell us some important information. If you you read them, for example, in verse 4 we see that his nephew Lot went with him. Uh, we see there in verse 4, how old was Abram? He's 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Uh, we we see his, that he's married, his wife goes with him. We see that Abram's wife is Sarai. Uh, we see that uh, they in, in verse 5, they take possessions with them, that they've gathered along the way. There's also servants in their household. So Abram is a wealthy man. So there's a lot of things we learn there in, in those verses, but the keynote comes at the very beginning of verse 4. Look at the beginning of verse 4, because it says, So Abram went as the Lord had told him. By the way, as we just quickly read those couple verses, there's a lot of things that are left out in this story, right? There's a lot of things we don't know. We do know some things. Uh obviously the journey had to be a major undertaking but there's not a word here about well what exactly pre- what precise route did abram take what was the weather like or how many bad guys did uh, did they encounter along the way or were they able to find their chinese takeaways as they were going you know we don't know any of this sort of stuff right how did they eat and drink and you know all the logistics of Going that far. None of that is there in your Bible. All we see is Abram went. I mean, it just sounds so short and trite and easy, doesn't it? Abram went as Yahweh had spoken to him, but you need to understand this was a difficult trip. Uh, first of all, leaving his homeland, leaving most of his family would have been hard enough as it was. And I've, I've put a picture of what. Uh, an artist rendition of Ur, by the way. Ur is not some just little podunk little place with nothing around there. Uh, There was a what's it, Sir Woolley, I think was his name. He excavated this place for something like 14 years. And so they know basically what Ur was like. It was an amazing place. (laughs) As you can see, it had a harbor. There's, There's plenty of water. There's Huge, beautiful temples to worship their moon god. Right? There's there's, there's a huge city going on here. It's a refined place. So leaving home and family wasn't easy. And then making this huge, long journey to some place where they didn't even know where they were going. Uh, Some have said this was, was a journey of about 900 miles or about 1,500 kilometers those of you who are farmers, how would you like to kind of pack up your belongings, take all your cattle, and start driving your cattle all the way across down to Stewart Island? That would be fun, wouldn't it? Especially when bulls have minds of their own, right? And cows and things, and your cattle aren't uh, aren't necessarily very obedient. And then you've you, know, you got this huge entourage of your, not just your stuff, but you, you know there's other people in your family, and you've got to provide for them and along the way, and you don't know what bad guys you're going to meet along the way, and so forth. It, it's a difficult journey. But notice it just says in verse 4 that Abram went. He obeyed God. But along the way, we also see how Abram worshipped God. In verses 6-9, through nine, did you notice there were several times it says that Abraham worshipped God. How did he do that? He did that by, he built altars and he worshipped God. So when Abram arrived in central Canaan, he it says he eventually comes to this oak tree of Morah. And so how do we know that God's call was successful? <laughs> Not only did he obey, he worshipped God. But he comes to this, this oak tree. Now, oak here could actually be translated, maybe some of you even got a footnote in your Bible, that says the terebinth of the teacher. Uh, that just means this may have been a, a sacred spot for the locals. Uh, perhaps this is where the pagans would come and, and try to receive some revelation from the tree. The tree. <laughs> you say, really? Did people do that? Yeah. There was often special shrines and places people would go to to try to get special revelation because they wanted to know what the gods would teach them. And and apparently this was one of those places. This tree was special. This was the oak tree of Morah. And so here's, here's Abram. He's been uprooted from his environment to this new environment. And he comes to this pagan place. But in spite of the pagan culture, what does Abram do? He doesn't go to the oak tree and say, Oh, oak tree, give me wisdom. No. He builds an altar and worships God. And all the pagans around him are probably wondering, What is this? Who is this guy and what is he doing? But that's what he did. He builds his altar to Yahweh. He doesn't kind of just blend in with the locals. You know, do as the Romans do. You ever heard that saying? No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't blend in with locals. He doesn't do as they do. Instead, he worships Yahweh. And notice he's doing it openly. And it's only Yahweh. Abram's worship of God, by the way, is not a one-time event here. Because if you read 6-9, through he does it several times. This is a lifestyle for Abraham, And it happens again several times. So Abram's worship of God, just take note. Here's three things to take note of. It was... Only God, He did it openly, and He did it often. That's a good pattern for our worship of God. But why is Abram making sacrifices here? Why does he do this? Well, he comes to God here by this means of atonement. Uh, Atonement, just think of it, how do I become at one with God? At one with God. And he's doing this through this offering. Now what does it mean here? Because it it talks about him calling on the name of Yahweh in verse 8. Did you see that? Verse 8 says, "Uh, From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai in the east, and there he built an altar to the Lord. And he just doesn't build an altar. What does he do? He, He called upon the name of Yahweh. Now, when you see that in your Old Testament, you've got to ask, what What is that there for? What does that mean? It probably is referring to some public prayer. It's a public worship of God. Maybe he's proclaiming truth about God. We don't know exactly. But however that is taken, the text is speaking of his testimony, and the testimony is given in public. It's given in the open. It's public worship done in the midst of a pagan world. It's Canaanite culture. These are idol worshippers. And he's coming right into their midst, right next to their shrines, and he's worshipping God unashamedly. Don't you love it? I love this. And some look at this and say, okay, so what? What's the point? Why is this important? Why are you talking about this? Well, God talked about it. Why is it here? Well, the record of Abraham's response has to be here for a reason. God doesn't waste his words, right? It tells us one thing about God's call. One thing we can learn is that God's call has takers. God's call has takers. In other words, it is successful. There are some people, like Abram, who obey God. Abram's response also illustrates the sort of response that God is seeking from us as well. What kind of a response does God want from you when he calls you to do something? And so I ask you this, my friends are you obeying God's call in your life? Are you obeying God's call in your life? This is a good response, a successful call, wouldn't you say, because Abram obeyed God. And Abram worshiped God. But what else can we learn about God's call here in Abram's life is that, number three, that God's call is seemingly impossible. Seemingly impossible. Now, humanly speaking, it's seemingly impossible. Because we see in verses 6 and 7, what does it say? (laughs) We see Abram passed through. So he's going through this land, and he, and he, he goes past this, this uh, oak tree there at Morah. At the time, the Canaanites were in the land. But God appears to Abram, and notice what God says, To your offspring I will give this land. So Abram builds an altar there. <laughs> See, God has an amazing plan to bless his world. How does he do this? Well, God would send a Savior, ultimately. Uh, You read those promises, all those I will statements that God gave to Abram. One of those is that through Abram, all peoples of the earth would bless. How did God do that? Ultimately through Jesus Christ. But the plan here, at this point in human history, looks like it's not even going to get off the ground it looks like an overweight airplane without wings, <laughs> right? It looks like a really fat chicken that's had its wings clipped, that's eaten too much. That's what it looks like at this point. Because notice we see in verse 7 that God says, To Abram's seed I will give this land. That's what God said. Now that one sentence there creates two, two problems for God. God. Well, humanly speaking, it presents two problems. Number one, notice, first of all, Abram doesn't own any land. He owns no land. He doesn't have the means to buy all this land that God's promised. In fact, if you look at the end of verse 6, it says the land is already possessed. So he can't come in and just take it. He can't pay for it. There's all these Canaanites that are already there, so... How is he going to get the land? The other problem here is that Abram doesn't have a seed. Remember, God said, through your seed, eventually all peoples of the earth would be blessed? Okay, how is this going to happen? He doesn't even have children. And remember, we've already found out how old is Abram? Abraham's 75 years old. So Abram doesn't have any children. It's not likely that he's going to have any children. The Bible already said that his wife is barren, and Abraham is 75 years old. So here you come to verse 7, and it just packs into all of this. In, in just, it just packs it into one impossible sentence. <laughs> Don't you love verse 7? I love this. The beginning of verse 7. It just says that the Lord appeared to Abram, and said, To your offspring I will give this land what can you imagine what Abraham is thinking to your offspring Uh, hold a minute hold on there a minute God do you recognize how old I am do you know that my wife is barren you've just sent me to this place that's just packed full of Canaanites do you really think they're going to let me take their land I I could just see him having this conversation with God don't you Maybe he didn't, maybe he did, I don't know. But just packed in that one verse, there's this impossible statement. He had no children, he has no land. (laughs) Kind of looks like this call was all for nothing. He's just wasted all his time and money getting all the way over here to Canaan, right? Well, here's the way the commentator Derek Kidner put this. He said that God's way is to preface his great works with extreme difficulties. No kidding. <laughs> Extreme difficulties. Really, that's an understatement. No land, no children. What is God up to here? you got to ask that question, right? What is He up to? God just loves taking these seemingly impossible situations and declaring His glory to the nations. Well, my friends, God not only operates this way with Abram, but He often does this with his servants. He often will do it even in our lives. But at the same time, let me just give you a warning. Be be very careful here because God doesn't always operate the same with every person. Just because he did this with Abram doesn't mean he's going to do it with you. You've got to be careful. It doesn't always work this way. But one of the things as you read your Bible, you notice God has a tendency to use extreme difficulties to declare His honor and glory to people. And it's a pattern that God repeats often in human history. Let's just look at one example through the, through the uh, eye of the Apostle Paul here, where the Apostle Paul remembers being just reduced to helplessness. Extreme difficulties in his life. But notice what God says here in Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. It's on the screen. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. Wise words. Now generally speaking, generally speaking, God tends to do this. He tends to put people in these impossible situations. Now, He does that for many reasons, right? God always does what He does for His honor and glory and for your good. He wants to teach us that if we survive, if we endure, if we go on standing in all of this mess, it is only by His power that we have somehow managed to do this. As Paul says even here in 2 Corinthians 1, why? You say, why? Well, why does God do this? Again, it's it's for His honor and glory and for our good. There's a fourth thing we can learn about God's call, even from Abram's life here, that God's call is for supreme affection in our lives. It is for supreme affection. That's number four. And as you read in this chapter here, We see a pilgrim who is on a journey. The life of faith demands that we be pilgrims in this world. He was called out of his family and his homeland to go somewhere else. Now the book of Hebrews helps illuminate a little bit more here of what's going on. It tells us about Abram's relationship to this promised land. So let me just read these verses here to you. From Hebrews 11, verse 9, it says, By faith, by faith, he, that's Abram, went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward. Notice what he's looking forward to. He's not looking forward to establishing roots somewhere else. He's looking to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abram's looking to God, because God is his supreme affection. So God calls Abram to give up some very important things here. Notice what Hebrews 11 says. Abram's to relinquish his family, relinquish his country Relinquish all of those ancestral customs and what he's what he loves and, and is familiar with in, in essence, Abram's called here to give up his home and everything that goes with his home, and what was it that caused Abram to make a wild decision like this? This is a radical decision i can imagine can you imagine put yourself in his sandals for a moment? Imagine all of Abram's friends back in Ur and his family and his, his priests there at the moon god temple. Imagine imagine what Abram, you know, going to his priests and his friends saying, Hey, uh, I'm leaving. What? Ur's an awesome place. Where are you going? I don't know. Why are you leaving? Uh, god told me to leave. God told you to leave. You don't know where you're going? You're giving all this up? You don't even know where you're going? Yeah, it would have been radical, wouldn't it? So what caused Abram to make that kind of decision? Well, Hebrews 11 here provides some answers. Notice, first of all, he left because God called him. And the Bible says he obeyed. I like the way Martin Luther, uh, as he was commenting on this, here's the way he put it. He said, Abraham followed the naked voice of God. He left all and followed the Almighty, preferring the Word of God to everything else and loving it above above all things. So he left because God called him to. Second, he left because he's a man of faith and he's looking to the true reward. The true reward. So Abraham's clear vision of God's call here and somehow he had a vision of the future somehow detached him from this world he was able to uproot himself and go somewhere else and did you notice even when he got there he still never put down roots he kept traveling around he never built a home he just keep traveling around in this tent being a nomad and this is the way it is for God's people. We can be we can become detached as God's people as we too understand God's call and understand the future. It keeps us uh, our our lives grounded where it needs to be. Now, that idea is radical. It's radical. It's amazing. It challenges the dominant ideal ideologies of our time because what does one of your enemies this this cosmos that you live in this world that you live in it it it's causing us to think certain ways it has certain values beliefs and philosophies it it wants you to just kind of settle down to be secure to have to have a place in life and a purpose in life everything around us is just is just screaming at us and teaching us hey just hunker down save everything you can hedge yourselves against All this stuff out there. Protect yourself so you're ready for everything. Our natural desires want comfort. We want protection. We want love. We want joy. We want peace. We want all this stuff. Our culture celebrates great houses and powerful families and amazing wealthy companies. In fact, I just read this morning the second quarter for Apple May, what did it, it was, I think, it was 26 billion dollars just in the second quarter of this year. Mind-boggling. And of course, the world celebrates this, and even way down here in New Zealand, they got to put it in the newspaper: What Apple's doing, and they celebrate it. But what does God's word say about this? Look at this: Colossians three, verse one says, "If or since you have been raised with Christ." Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And so, my friends, what have we seen so far in this text? We see that God so loved the world. That he destroyed the wall, right? Well, he could have done that right? I mean he chapter three, you had the fall, you had the flood, chapter six through eight, you had this tower of Babel, and I mean three strikes you're out, right? Well, that's the way it is in baseball, but not with God, okay, with God, obviously, it's not three strikes, and you're out of there no it's he continues to be loving, and so he loves the world, and he calls this pagan idolater. You know what God's doing today? He's, he, that's, he's still doing the same thing. He's still the same God. He keeps adding to Abraham's seed, gathering more and more of Abraham's children, still gathering people, sharing in Abraham's faith. And so the call he gave Abraham here hasn't really changed. The God who called Abraham hasn't changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, as he did with Abram, God sometimes will ask His people to leave one situation, not not so that you just go and suffer and you have a worse situation, but He actually brings them out of that situation into a better situation. Sometimes God gives back to us far more than we actually left behind. Do you believe God is a good God? Certainly we must be willing to leave everything behind for Jesus Christ, but look what Jesus says here. In Matthew 10, verse 37, he says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. That's radical stuff. And it shows really where does your love lie? What is your supreme affection? Is it family? Is it your lifestyle, your job, your whole identity, whatever that looks like? What is it? Well, Jesus is saying you—you you aren't my disciple here if you're not taking up your cross and following me. Does He have supreme affection in your life? And you say, well, man, that's really hard. I mean, I'm going to give up. I'm going to give up so much stuff. If I let go of this stuff in my life, man, that's that's hard. I'm giving up so much. Well, look what Jesus said to his disciples. Are you really giving up that much? Look what Jesus says here in Mark 10. Mark 10. Jesus says, There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. You say, "Well, okay, that's in the future. That's in heaven, right? No, what did Jesus say? A hundredfold now in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Wow, I like those kind of returns. Man, if I could get that in the stock market in my uh, Kiwi saver, I'd, I'd, I'd I'd be putting everything into it. Those are awesome returns. So, Jesus doesn't ask us to leave that which we love. And when he does, our resolve must remain firm here. Sometimes Jesus does ask us to leave those things that we love. But, do you love him more? Sometimes different people may be asked to leave different things. For example, in the Bible, Jesus asked that rich, young ruler, uh, and, and there with that rich, young ruler, he was told, hey, go and sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. Now, Jesus doesn't do that with everything, everyone. But Jesus was showing this who, this guy who is self-righteous, who thinks he's kept all the Ten Commandments, Jesus just destroyed him by showing, no, actually... He doesn't love God, and he doesn't love people. So he's broken all the Ten Commandments by not doing what Jesus told him to do. So discipleship doesn't ask this of everybody, but to become disciples, you have to be willing to leave anything that we're asked to leave, and that's what we learn of God. And though God promises that no sacrifice is going to be made in vain, we must not allow ourselves to somehow think that that material reward of, of is the incentive here. He had really no idea what he was going to get when he got there. <laughs> but instead, we do well to remember the haunting words. I love what Jim Elliott said. Uh, Jim Elliott was a, uh, a missionary to South America, and he wrote a journal, and he made this amazing quote in his journal. He said, He is Here's what Jim Elliot said. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. See, there is something you cannot lose. Are you willing to give up stuff you can't keep to gain the very thing you can't lose? Jesus tells us how to do that. So, my friends, Jesus is simply demanding this place of Supreme affection in your life. We are to love God, right? That is the supreme number one of all commands. And so I ask you, as we've we've thought about this this call to Abram that God gave him, is there anything that's keeping you from coming to Yahweh's call? Are there any hindrances, barriers, speed bumps, whatever you want to call them? That's That's hindering you from coming to Yahweh's call. He desires your supreme affection. Have you given it to Him? Are you holding back? Don't do that. It's worth it. It's worth it. He is worth it. He is worth that supreme affection in our lives. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for uh, Your call here on this pagan idolater by the name of Abram. We're thankful that Your call... Even though it's unexplainable, it is successful. You are accomplishing your great purposes, and we're thankful that those purposes are always for your honor and glory and our good. And so may we understand that. May we believe who you are. You're always good and always great. May we follow you when you do call. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen.